Radio Mano Papachango. This is going to be a, an audio-only version of the video Roma that I record once a month for subscribers to this podcast. By subscribers, I mean people who go to my website, thatchrisryan.com, and uh, become members. Uh, there's a members forum, uh, and there are freebies that you can get uh, if you sign up for as little as uh, I think the minimum is two bucks a month. I'm thinking of raising that to five bucks a month because I mean, really 50 cents a week. I think any, if you can afford anything, you can afford a buck a week. Right. I mean, I don't know. Anyway, um, the point is that right now the minimum is $2. If you can afford more, that's great. Uh, if not, whatever. Um, and what you're missing by, having only this audio version. First of all, I'm, I only do it uh, one out of every four or five probably. Uh, and the second is that the questions I'm answering are from the members only forum. And at this point, there's still um, a limited number of questions enough that I seem to be getting to all of them every month. So if you have a burning question you really want me to discuss or respond to, the best way uh, to get my attention is to become a member and place that question in the members forum. I'm not saying I've got answers to every question. I have actually answers to very few questions, but some of them, uh, I'll at least respond to all of them. And some of them, who knows, I might actually have an answer. Um, so thank you for listening. This, If you're listening only on audio, this has gone out on the normal feed. Um, and, uh, but if you want to see me responding to these from my kitchen table, you can sign up and watch the video on YouTube. You'll receive the link when you become a member. All right. Thanks. Let's get on with it. Yo. Okay. The audio is started. So people who are listening on the normal feed are with us and I am recording the video for people who are subscribers. Okay. <clears throat> First question from Cassia. Chris, uh, for years my husband and I have been talking about starting a sort of lifeboat community like the one you're planning. I was wondering what you were taking into consideration when you're picking your place. We are based in Europe, so we're considering the Canary Islands, Portugal, Spain, and Poland. We're not quite sure where to go and have trouble narrowing down our choices. With global warming, Spain might become too hot. The Canary Islands might have water shortages or issues with heat. Um, Poland is headed in a conservative direction at the moment, and language is an issue there. Portugal has issues with forest fires, etc. It would be great to hear more about what kind of places you were considering and what you're looking out for. What were some of the places in Europe that you've considered? Okay, Cassia. Well, uh, yeah, this has been an issue for sure. This is definitely something I've uh, 
thought about a lot and um has has been a has been a problem honestly because you know no place is perfect and um I don't know how to say this is it's like every place has its downsides um and then when you throw into the mix the unpredictable elements of climate change and who knows what kind of political stuff is going to be happening, it becomes impossible. And I'd, I'd be lying to you if I said that I, I've answered this question in my own head. You know, like uh, I've bought land here in, in Crestone, Colorado, and... Uh, it's lovely. Um, it's a beautiful place. It's a very special place. But I'm also looking very closely at the news every day. And um, what's happening to this country? Is this going to be a place? You know, it's it's funny because one thing that's kind of liberating about this is I, I look at my age. I'm 58. And I say, well, you know what? I got 20, maybe 30 years ahead of me. Um, so if we're looking at, you know, the end of the 21st century weather conditions, which, you know, climactic conditions, which no one can really, uh, predict, we know shit's hitting the fan, but we don't know from exactly what direction and what type of shit will hit the fan or is already hitting the fan. So it's kind of impossible to to judge things that far out. Um, so I feel a little bit liberated by the fact that I only really have 20 or 25 years to worry about. Uh, but on the other hand, ideally it would be fantastic uh, if we were able to start something that outlives me. And so then those considerations do come back into play. Um, I think the language issue is a major one. If you can't talk to the people in the community around you, uh, that's going to be um, a severe detriment to your own quality of life and to your ability to sort of know what's happening. And it could alienate you from the local people. So I would say definitely choose a place where you can interact freely and easily with local people. Um, <clears throat> because you don't want to be seen as some sort of, you know, interlopers coming from outside and buying up property and, and, you know, causing problems. And then you can't even like talk to people to defend yourself or understand what's going on. So I think language is very important. I think the Canary Islands are awesome. Um, if I were to go back to Spain to live, I think the Canaries might be where I would go. Some of the islands are on and entirely passive energy, for example. Um, so if there's like a, a meltdown in the grid, they would still have energy for a while. They grow a lot of their own food out there. Uh, it's They've got fantastic growing conditions, which I think is important, whether you are just planning to have a garden to feed yourself or a community garden, or if you're looking at like larger structural issues, um, of course, the Canaries are quite isolated and a lot of stuff is flown in uh, or shipped in. But still, I think if the whole grid went down, Canary Islands would probably do all right. There's a lot of fish out there, beautiful weather, 
all year long, really nice people and um, great growing conditions. Um, so yeah, I think the Canary Islands are awesome. Um, and Spain seems to be relatively stable politically. Um, so those are conditions uh, that, that appeal to me. I don't know. That, that's probably my second guess or, or my second choice for where to set this sort of thing up. Another possibility is Uruguay. I've heard fantastic things about Uruguay. Uh, I haven't been there, so I can't speak uh, from firsthand knowledge, but I've heard it's great. I, a lot of people love Costa Rica. Uh, I think generally, for me, it's important, A, as I said, that I can interact with the local people, and B, that the place offers some kind of mm, resilience um, if shit gets weird. Um, so in terms of um, growing your own food, access to hunting or fishing or whatever. So um, yeah, those are my considerations. Thank you. It's a, it's a complicated question. I wish I had a clear answer, but I, I really don't. Other than the thing about language, I think that's important. And look, Spanish is easy. Um, so if you don't speak Spanish, I wouldn't worry too much about it because you can get to a conversational level in Spanish quite quickly. And Spanish people are really open and friendly and happy to, to help. You know, it's not like a, the Parisian thing where people, if you don't speak very well, they just don't want to deal with you. It's uh, Spanish people, in my experience, are extremely generous and, and kind with that. Uh, okay, so let's see. This is from Riku. In Civilized to Death, you described how agriculture is the leading cause for our foraging ancestors to get into unhealthy social structures, war, property, etc. I've been using these arguments in my discussions, but lately a friend of mine pointed out that there are tribes who have moved from peaceful nomadism to war and pillage without agriculture. One example of this are the Mongol tribes, who started as hunting and herding nomads, but ended up taking over almost all of Asia with their horses without ever getting into agriculture. It made me rethink the argument, question the premise. It seems that agriculture is more a means to feed the growing population after all the fatty, tasty mammoth meat is gone. Right. Um, okay, and then he gets into some other examples. Uh, right. Uh, and then he shares a band called Kingston Wall, which I guess has something to do with Fungadelic and Jimi Hendrix. All right. So uh, good question, Riku. Uh, and this comes up a lot. Uh, I, I did address this to some extent in Civilized to Death. Not a lot, but I, I do remember uh, being certain to insert a section where I explain that um, there are supposedly hunter-gatherers who exhibit some of these warlike characteristics without agriculture. The, it's a complicated thing because of terminology. Uh, for some reason, anthropologists insist on referring to these societies as complex hunter-gatherers or settled hunter-gatherers, but they're not hunter-gatherers. They're only hunter-gatherers in the sense that they don't have agriculture, um, but they're not hunter-gatherers in the sense that they are not 
reliant upon hunting and gathering for the entirety of their food supply. Um, I'm talking about people, for example, like the uh, coastal tribes of the Pacific Northwest uh, United States um, who relied on seasonal salmon runs um, for a great deal of their food. These societies exhibit many of the characteristics of agricultural societies um, in terms of political hierarchy, slavery, um, if they're very warlike, uh, and uh, the status of women uh, plummeted, and so on. Um, now, what I explain in the book is that the key is not whether or not a society is agricultural. The key is whether or not there are accumulated resources. This is the issue. And all agricultural societies have accumulated resources. All true immediate return hunter-gatherer societies do not have accumulated resources. So to me, this is the key distinction between the sorts of hunter-gatherer societies that I'm referring to in my work um, and other types of societies. Um, immediate return hunter-gatherer societies, which I focus on because these are the societies in which the vast majority of our ancestors lived for two or 300,000 years, they didn't have accumulated resources. They didn't have, for example, dried salmon that they stored and had to defend and that could be pillaged by neighboring tribes who may have been hungry or may have heard that these guys smoke salmon and have giant piles of food, so let's go get some. That's a reason to fight. One of my major disputes with Steven Pinker is that he conflates these different sorts of societies, doesn't either understand or is playing slippery games with these distinctions in order to make points that aren't valid for our prehistoric ancestors. Our prehistoric ancestors ate what they found or caught or killed that day. They had no refrigeration. They weren't drying foods and staying in the same place. When they ran out of food in a certain place, they moved on. So they, they would move down shorelines. Um, and eat what they found. They dig out mussels, the clams, they find dead fish that come up on the beach, they would net fish, they would spear fish. So they moved along and gathered food where they found it. That's the sort of um, definitive, defining characteristic of so-called immediate return hunter-gatherer societies. The societies that your friends are talking about, the proto-Mongol hordes, they were herding societies. So herding societies do have accumulated resources in the form of herds of sheep or goats or cattle or whatever it is that they're herding. That's their wealth. They have accumulated wealth. Now, once you have accumulated wealth, the rest of it kicks in. You need to defend it. Someone needs to figure out how to distribute it, who gets what, when. You can't just kill all your cows, right? You need, you, even no matter how hungry people are, um, 
you can't just kill your entire herd because then you've got nothing going forward. Um, so you, you once you have accumulated resources in a society, whether it's dried salmon, whether it's um, herds of, of animals, of cattle, sheep, or what have you, then you have this whole suite of social constructions that emerge, uh, political hierarchy, you have someone in charge, you have someone who's in charge of distributing the wealth, you have um, uh, discrepancies in wealth and social status, you have women lose social status, you have war because you have to defend your resources or, and or go and take someone else's resources. If you're a herder and you see someone over there with a, a small herd and they can't defend themselves, well, go fucking kill them and take their herd, right? Why not? You, that's what you do. You're a herder. Um, if you're agricultural, it's about land. If you're in the you know uh, Pacific Northwest, it's about salmon and um, occupying particular rivers and streams where lots of salmon come. So there's something worth fighting over is the point once you have this these accumulated resources. Immediate return hunter-gatherers <clears throat> did not have accumulated wealth. Therefore, there's really nothing worth risking your life fighting over. And this is, um, this gets in, you know, this is sort of the essential logic um, by which you can establish that war emerged with settled communities uh, or not necessarily settled if, as you say, they were no, not nomadic but sort of mobile herding societies like the Mongols, you also have war. So it's about the resources. It's not about agriculture per se. Agriculture just happens to be the means by which most societies shifted into that uh, wealth accumulating uh, modality. So I hope that's clear. I should have a, an elevator pitch way of saying that by now. I've said it so many times. Um, okay, this is from Isota Cobianco, whom I met in our uh, Zoom call recently. <clears throat> I was thinking I might do more of those Zoom calls maybe for you know, another kind of like um, incitement to get people to, to sign up uh, to subscribe to the podcast. But more than, you know, a dozen or so people, I think it gets unwieldy. So I was thinking maybe I'll do like, I don't know, for people who subscribe at, you know, 10 or $20 a month or something, we'll do a monthly Zoom call. I don't know. See if you guys think that's a good idea. You know, I hate doing these things because I don't want to sort of exclude people who can't afford it. I don't want it to be purely, um, you know, money-based. Um, but on the other hand, uh, if people can't afford it, then I want to give them some value for, for what they're contributing. And, um, on the other hand, and, and also it, it, it needs to, there needs to be some filtering mechanism because if we have 50 or hundred people on a zoom call, it's, it's a mess. Anyway, Isota. Yes, she asked this question in the Zoom call and said she'd bring it up later. Um, do you have any advice about how to be single and have an enriching sex life? I'm 42 years old. You mentioned on the Zoom call this may be more of a problem for women. 
And she says, in my case, I have no problem finding guys to have sex with, but usually the first time we do it is more like getting to know one another, and then there's usually not a second time. I asked a guy, and he told me I should probably praise guys more and make them feel like they really drove me crazy, uh, but it's hard with guys you don't know much. Yeah. I wouldn't I wouldn't say that's great advice because essentially what he's saying is lie uh which isn't a good idea. I would go the other direction. <clears throat> I would say that um being extremely honest is the best and really maybe only way to um to have a, a happy sex life while you're being single um because there's so much room for um is this recording yeah i guess so there's so much room for confusion and hurt feelings and so on um that i think it's really important to communicate um where you are where you want to go um and and what you're feeling as clearly and honestly as possible and i think you're going to end up hurting people's feelings anyway so you're always going to get into this conundrum of you know f- feeling connected and intimate and caring for someone and then um and then you get to a boundary that you have set and they want to go further and you don't um you don't say why you're single or why you want to be single um and that can affect how you handle this uh there was a period in my life when I um, had just left a relationship and, and I really did not want to be in another relationship because I didn't want to go through the pain of trying to dig my way out of something that I had burrowed deeply into, you know, that it was just the pain of coming out was so much I didn't want to go back in, you know. Um And so I was very clear in my boundaries and um, I had some fantastic relationships over those years. And um, I think I probably did it as well as I could have um, because I was extremely, extremely honest. Um, And so I think that's what you need to do. I, without knowing your specific situation, it's, it's hard to get into any more detail than that. Um, but I do think it's very important to be honest. And, you know, telling guys like, oh my God, that's the best sex I've ever had, if it's not, is, is not the way to do it. Because then you're establishing your entire interaction with that person on a lie. And at some point, if, let's say, things continue to get deeper with that person at some point you're going to have to uh you know confess to that and and that's going to be pretty awkward so 
and also like you know i think sex gets better the more you know someone the more intimacy there is and so to to start off by saying oh that was the best ever that's telling him i think that you know giving him the impression that you're kind of shallow and that for you sex is all just about you know bodies or something um which could cause problems later if that's not actually how you feel so i i think being as honest as you possibly can is important now i also saw saw you on the zoom call you're very attractive so you're going to have um a lot of this you know men pushing for more than you want to give um and that's going to be awkward especially in peru where there's this strong culture of machismo and um so you're in a difficult position for sure um i would say maybe look for foreigners non-peruvians um who may be more open to these sorts of things when i was in spain a lot of spanish women were um sort of hanging out uh in places where foreign dudes were because they were they just wanted to have fun they wanted to have friendships and you know kind of casual sexual friendships and they knew that that would be really difficult with spanish men so they would go to irish pubs and stuff and and you know meet me and my friends praise the lord okay let's see next question uh this is from a weird screen name there's a question i have been turning around in my head for some time in 29 years old dude um so it's kind of long here it says um how much okay basically it it's it's about like this sort of melting down of the earth and and western civilization and like this shit isn't working so what should we do um he says there's always good old revolution though as far as i can see the odds of a peaceful one are almost impossible. Yes, I agree. And also meet the new boss same as the old boss. Revolutions don't seem to change much. Um you know, they offer a lot and in the end um well, who knows where the end is. Anyway, he says smaller scales seem more manageable, learn to farm, conserve a small forest, lead by example maybe become a therapist or help people with plant medicines don't worry about saving the world just save yourself and your friends um some days i know that's true other days i'm not so sure then there's the desire to say screw it all i want to climb surf hop on a sailboat see the whole world before it's gone to run and fight and fuck and eat and sing to swim in rivers and bathe in waterfalls listen to the sounds of the forest in a soft rain this is well written i want to make art and experience the divine try to peer behind the veil before the inevitable tumble through to the other side um how much energy should we dedicate to activism for lack of a better word is there something inherently wrong with just enjoying 
the good hand I was dealt, or do I owe something to the world? A life of meaning has to involve some sacrifice, no? Some fighting for justice and good? I don't want to just wait for someone else to fix things or ignore the suffering outside my gates. Did you feel like this when you were younger? Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, this is a very um, important and touching question. I did feel like that when I was younger. I, I, I felt um, that I had some responsibility to enjoy the opportunities that I had um, to travel, um, you know, to listen to the rain and to read the books that I love to read and to um, enjoy the company of people that I've met on the road. Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, I don't, I don't know that I thought of it in terms of responsibility because it wasn't, it wasn't work at all. It was, um, it was pleasure. And I've always felt a responsibility to pleasure. I think that's one of the issues I've, I've had with American society and one of the ways in which I felt so much more comfortable in Spanish society is, you know, if you have a plate of food in front of you, in America, many people will feel uh, negative feelings around that. That, um, you know, they'll get hung up on the calories or that uh, they, have, they didn't go to the gym today, so they shouldn't eat this. Or, um, you know, the, the pesticides or the suffering of the animals or what have you. And those are all legitimate points and legitimate concerns. And, and I think um, it's important to be conscious of all these different aspects of the food we eat. But I think an equally important consideration is, is, is that there's like a responsibility to enjoy the food to enjoy. If you don't enjoy it, it's almost like you're wasting it. And it turns out that there's some scientific validity to that, that your body processes food and absorbs the, the nutrients in the food more efficiently if you're happy, if you're enjoying yourself, if you're, um, you know, having that food in the company of friends and you're laughing and you have a little wine and if you enjoy the food the food is better utilized by your body and so if you're concerned about the suffering of the animal potentially or um you know how your body's going to interact with that food it's almost as if you have a responsibility to enjoy it um, you know, I'm reminded of the, the ubiquitous custom among Native Americans of uh, when they kill a deer, the first thing they do is get down and 
pray to the spirit of the deer, thanking that spirit for providing this. There's a sense of gratitude and humility and sadness that I'm sorry I had to kill you, dear, um, but I promise you that I will eat you and utilize your body with respect and pleasure. And um, so I think that there's a, an element of responsibility to enjoyment that we have in life. You know, if I was listening to an interview the other day with um, Jack White, who's talking with Conan O'Brien. It was an interesting interview. It wasn't on the Conan O'Brien show. It was on this, um, like, a video podcast thing called Serious Dibble Dabble or something like that. It's on YouTube. And it's like a 90-minute conversation. And Jack White was talking about how there's a thing going on where, you know, he would play in a club and a song would end and people don't applaud. And it's like this, you know, too cool to clap thing. And I guess he's got a lot of like hipster fans. So it's a serious issue for him. And he was, he was saying like, look, if you don't clap, I don't know which songs you enjoyed more. If you don't respond to me, you don't give something back. I don't know what, um, I don't know which songs to include in tomorrow night's show or which song to drop maybe because, and he said, comedians have it so much easier because people laugh and they know which jokes work and which ones don't based upon the laughter. But when it's an intentional response, like clapping, that you can decide whether to clap or not, and a lot of people are deciding not to, like, I don't get the feedback that I need. And, and, and he went off on this whole thing about how fans don't, audiences don't recognize that the performer needs something from them. Um, and I feel like the world is hungry for our enjoyment of it. And by that, I don't mean exploitation. I don't mean the sort of Old Testament thing where the animals and the soil and everything is here for us to use and to, you know, exploit. I mean to appreciate. I mean to smell that rain in the forest, to really smell it, to Take off your fucking clothes and feel that rain on your body. Somehow I feel like the earth needs that. Just as much as a woman needs to hear from her man how fucking beautiful she is. Just as much as a man needs to hear how admired he is. Like We all need that feedback. And I feel like... Carl Sagan said years ago that human beings are the universe looking back at itself. I think that's so interesting, right? Because we are the universe. We're made of the same things as the same atoms, uh, the same molecules as, as stardust. Parts of us, elements in us came from space. They're not terrestrial. They don't come from Earth. They actually came in on meteors and now they're part of us. And so 
we are the universe and there's something about enjoying life that I, I feel closes that circuit, right? It's like, it's like a musician plays music and he wants to see people get up and dance, right? A musician wants to see people responding to her music because then it closes a circuit somehow. Uh, my friend Kyle Tierman talked about how when he was getting into hunting, he realized that the end of the hunt was when he sat down with his friends and shared the meat and watched his friends eating this animal that he had killed. That that's, that was the completion of the process of that hunt. Um, so yes, I do think that there is some responsibility that we have to respond to and and savor the world and i think that when you do that you fall in love with it and when you fall in love with the world, then you want to protect it. Then you want to nourish it. Then you want to give back to it. And I think that in the seasons of life, those impulses will rise and fall in different ways. And... So I guess what I'm saying is I feel that you are, you're 29 years old, you're in a period where you're hungry and you're strong and you're free and you're light on your feet. And so probably the strongest impulse you're feeling right now is to get out there and savor to experience at least that's what where I was when I was 29 it was all about I want to sail I want to fucking fight and sleep and I didn't want to fight actually but I wanted to fuck and eat and sing and swim and you know bathe in waterfalls and all that business 100% but then at a certain point I started to feel you know it's like I, I ate my fill and after, and I know other people are waiting to sit down at the table and like, okay, now I started to feel like I'm not extracting the maximum amount of pleasure from this because I feel like I've overstayed my welcome and it's time for me to get out of the way and let someone else come in here and enjoy this. And so that wasn't a guilt trip. That was, I think, an acknowledgement of the seasons of life. I, I've often thought of my life as like one long inhalation and now a long exhalation. It's like a, a taking in and a giving back. And I feel like that cycle, you know, that's in our breath, it's in the beat of our heart, it's in the pulse of life is natural and good and so when you're in your 20s if what you're feeling is like god damn it i want to see 
coral reefs before they're gone. Well, then go fucking do it, dude. Go do it. Um, Because there will come a time where you are going to feel, if you're authentic with yourself, there will come a time where you feel like, okay, now it's time for me to put in some effort to defend and nourish these things that I love, this, this life that I love, this planet that I love. And when that comes, that'll come and that'll be the time to do it. So I would sort of surrender to the, the hungers that you have, um, you know, and obviously you're a sincere person, so you're not going to go and trash the coral reef. You're going to go and be very careful. And who knows, maybe you're going to meet someone there um, who is working to defend the coral reef and needs some help. And so pieces will fall into place um, if you're respectful of the things you love. So that is my response to... T-R-O-5-0-1-9. All right. Okay. This is someone else answering a question from someone else. And then we have Andreas, uh, who also was on the Zoom call. Hey, Andreas. Uh, I have never heard you say anything about Ishmael by Daniel Quinn. You seem to know it. And if you know it, I wonder that I haven't heard you talk about it. Um, what's your take on the book? Yes, I've read Ishmael by Daniel Quinn. In fact, Andrew Weil recommended that book to me back in 1992, maybe. And um, I enjoyed the book a lot. And in fact, I would say a lot of my subsequent research um, owes a lot to that book, to the the perspective on civilization. Um, for those of you who don't know the book, it's it's a strange book, um, and that's why it's kind of complicated. Like I really enjoy the information that's presented in the book, but I found the structure to be kind of silly. Um, basically, this guy goes to a zoo and this gorilla starts talking to him and they have this ongoing series of conversations in which the gorilla explains human prehistory and civilization and the difference between hunter-gatherers and civilizational people or agriculture, post-agricultural people, which he he describes as the leavers and the takers, right? The leavers are hunter-gatherers who might take some seeds and, you know, take some animals, but they leave the rest, uh, whereas the agricultural approach is to cut down all the fucking trees and take everything and hoard it and keep it for yourself. <laughs> so, long story short, I think the information is really important, and it's one of the first places I came across that perspective on civilization. So I'm very grateful uh, to have read it, but I did find the writing to be kind of... Um, awkward and the talking gorilla thing got old um, very fast for me. So, um, yeah. And people keep recommending that I read his subsequent books, The Story of B, I think it's called, um, 
and I'd like to, uh, but I just have so many things to read and I don't read nearly as much as I'd like to. I spend too much time reading articles and stuff online and not enough time reading actual books. So, although I did just get this book today, just arrived in the mail. Uh, for those of you who are watching, you can see what this is. Although I don't know if it's backwards on your screen. Um, this guy, Richard Burton, fascinating dude. Oh my God. He is, uh, let's see. Yeah, so he, he's a very interesting character. He spoke 26 languages, I think, um, well. And he was the first Westerner. He actually dressed up in uh, Arabic clothing and went to Mecca. You know, if he had been caught, they would have killed him. Uh, but he wanted to see what it was like. He was just ravenous uh, for knowledge. And he was very interested in sexuality. He studied sexuality all over the world. He was one of the first Westerners to translate the Kama Sutra. Um, and the Arabian Nights. He was a great supporter of women's sexual liberation during the height of Victorian conventionalism. Uh, yeah, he was just a fantastically intelligent, uh, interesting dude. So I'm very much looking forward to reading that book. But as you can see, that's a serious chunk of book right there. Um, okay, so that's Ishmael. Andreas. Now, Willem. Uh, oh, this is the last one. I was wondering what the holiday season looks like for you. Are you a gift giver? Is there a soft spot in you for a cheerful Christmas song or a holiday rom-com? <laughs> Do you keep it pagan and rejoice in the days growing longer? I've heard you in the past talk about disliking buying gifts because of occasion and da 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 but that may have just been about Valentine's Day. Yeah. Uh, Willem, you know, I don't, no, I don't give a rat's ass about Christmas. Um, yesterday, last night, I guess, was the, I always forget if it's a solstice or an equinox. I guess it's the solstice, the winter solstice. Um, so the days will start getting longer as of today, which is nice. I like the pagan stuff. I like the, you know, the lining up of stars and the, you know, the fact that Saturn and Uranus and the moon are in conjunction right now in a way that hasn't happened since 1633. I think that's interesting. I don't feel any sort of psychic significance to it, but, but I like it. Um, I experience the holidays to the extent that I do through other people. So it's like a parent who, who's like, I don't give a shit about Christmas, but my four-year-old's like totally into it. So I'm into it through her, you know, I don't have any four-year-olds around, but my mom, uh, it's a special time of the year for her. So, um, I try to acknowledge that, um, but my mother's so sweet and 
uh, I don't know if I've just worn her down over the years or what, but like if I don't call her on her birthday, she doesn't get mad. If I don't, you know, acknowledge Christmas, she doesn't, there's never a guilt trip or anything. I just know that it matters to her. So it matters to me in that respect. Um, but really other than that, um, no, I don't really care. And I don't, I haven't bought Christmas gifts or accepted Christmas gifts 20, 30 years, probably when I was living in Spain, you know, and, uh, I was broke and, and I was like, what am I going to do? I'm going to buy my parents something that they don't need. And then I'm going to pay twice the value of the thing itself to ship it to them. And then they're going to pretend they're going to be like touched by the gesture, but not like I'm giving them, you know, a tool that they need and can't afford or something. You know, there's no practical value in any of this. So I remember one year, it must have been probably 90, maybe 91. It was one of my first years in Spain. I remember saying to my parents, like, hey, instead of me spending $50 buying and sending you a gift. What if I just gave $50 to someone, some homeless person in the street, uh, you know, in your name or in your honor or whatever? And they said, oh, my God, that's that's great. Yes, do that. And And also, they're like, but you don't have to do that for us, right? Like, you don't have to do anything for us. But... Yeah, there's no need to for us to do this anymore, you know? And that's one of the things I one of many, many things I respect about my parents is that they, they don't they never cared about the ritual or the going through the motions. It was always just about you know, the underlying message and the love and the the recognition and the gratitude that we're in each other's lives. So that's how I feel about the holidays. I don't, you know, whatever is important in them is essentially a reminder to appreciate the people in your life who love you and who you love. And I aspire to never forget that. So I don't need the reminders you know, on certain dates of the year, you know, National Secretary's Day. Well, I don't have a secretary, but if I did, I would aspire never to take her for granted or treat her like shit. And to, if I saw something cool that I knew she would like to get it for her and to pay her as much as I possibly could, uh, you know, and whatever. Like, I don't think we need... I, I, I know a lot of people do need these things because they're so busy or the way their minds work or whatever, but um, my <clears throat> sort of inner discipline is to not forget these things so that I don't need to be reminded of them. So that's how I feel about the holidays. All right, it's been 50 minutes and I think I'm done with this. So I've answered all the questions. If you would like your question answered, become a subscriber on my podcast at thatchrisryan.com or tangentiallyspeaking.com. 
and put your question there in the forum and I will get to it. Thank you very much, everybody. This is a commercial-free episode, as geez, almost all of them are. Um, if you appreciate that commercial-free angle, that's another reason to sign up and throw some money in the uh, tip jar. Um, additionally, I always forget, I'm so bad at this self-promotion shit, I always forget to, to remind you that there is a web page. Uh, let me just confirm that it still exists. What? makes this thing great.com. Does that webpage still work? I haven't visited for a while. Yes, it does. There it is. So if you go to whatmakesthisthinggreat.com, you will see that there are uh, drop-downs, van life, podcasting, food, books, travel, camping, home, personal care. And all these are things that I use in my actual real life and love. So a lot of people will write to me and say, hey, what podcasting uh, gear do you use? What software? What mics? What this, that? It's all listed here. And most of these things, not all of them, but most of them um, have the link back to Amazon so that if you buy them through the website, we will get uh, the podcast gets a, a little cut of whatever you spend. So for example, under van life, we've got the indoor heater, the, oh, the speaker, the Bose SoundLink, which is right here. It's, I found this to be the best Bluetooth speaker. I've bought a bunch of them. I spent a lot of money on these fucking speakers, and most of them suck, but they this one's the real jam. It's funny, I'm looking through. Oh, I've got the levelers. Yeah, those are good. Got my my 12-volt fridge freezer excellent got a cooler got the ice packs got the water filter which is right over there uh yeah got a really good flashlight yeah so all sorts of the atlas so anyway if you're looking for gift ideas it's a little late now but you know if you're like me and christmas gifts could arrive at any time during the year go to what makes this thing great.com and check out some of the stuff that I recommend there. I'm not a big consumer, um, but I like things that are well-designed, well-built, and are going to last a long time, and that I can fix myself, ideally. Um, so that's what you'll see there. there it's, it's not like, hey, you know, go buy this, buy that, and then throw it away and buy it again in a year. This is stuff that uh, is going to last, hopefully. All right. End of ad, whatever kind of ad that was. Thank you all for your questions. Uh, thanks for your support. And uh, I will catch you in a month. Peace out.